Did you know the smallest form of life can travel enormous distances? How do they do that? How do microbes fly in the upper atmosphere? Hi, I'm Jim Green, Chief Scientist at NASA, and this is Gravity Assist. On this season of Gravity Assist, we're looking for life beyond Earth. I'm here with Dr. David J. Smith from the NASA Ames Research Center. And David is an astrobiologist, but he has significant experience in ecology and evolutionary biology. David spent the first portion of his NASA career as a principal investigator and project scientist specializing in microbiology. He's founded the Aerobiology Laboratory at the NASA Ames Research Center. Now, I also want to mention that David won the 2019 award, the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers. Welcome to Gravity Assist. Thank you so much, Jim. I'm happy to be here. Let's start out with what are we talking about? What do we mean when we're talking about microorganisms and why are they so important in the search for life? When we talk about microorganisms or microbes, we're really talking about small life. Life's so small that you can't see it with your own eyeball. Uh, in some cases, we're talking about single-celled microbes. And the reason we're so fascinated by microbes is because they're so successful on this planet. You could argue that Earth is a microbial planet. And I say that because microorganisms were the first to arrive on this planet, the first to emerge in uh, the evolutionary history of our planet. For billions of years, it was a microbial planet. And even today, when we look at the types of life on Earth, most of it is microbial in terms of the sheer diversity. And so microbes are really successful, both in the total amount of microbes on this planet and the adaptations of microbes in nature, their resilience to changing environmental conditions. And for those reasons, we expect them to be perhaps in the solar system and other places where we're interested in looking for signs of life. Yeah, that's a really important point. You know, when uh, our Earth had microbes for four billion years or so and, and survived many mass extinctions that went on, you know, perhaps that's what happened on other planets. And this is why we're looking for microbial life on those planets. Well, you know, I remember when microbes were found at high altitudes. And, and this was really mind-boggling. How would these tiny organisms really get lofted into space? You know, uh, they can't fly, right? So they, they, they've got to take off somehow. You said it, they don't have wings, but they can drift due to natural convection and winds that move in Earth's atmosphere that in a sense connect the Earth's surface to the atmosphere. And all of these patterns are because of prevailing winds around the globe. If you've ever been to the ocean, of course, as soon as you arrive at the beach, you smell it. You smell the salt, you smell the ocean, right? Those are aerosols. And a lot of those aerosols are um, reaching your nose because of wave action and winds on the coastline. So you also get microbes that live in the ocean pushed into the atmosphere with those same patterns. Well, what type of microbes have we found? We see 
the same kinds of microbes in the atmosphere that you would see if you went outside and scooped up some soil, a representative sample. The reason for that is maybe easier to understand if we just talk about how uh, microbes move in air, right? So if you were to sneeze and I were to microbiologically sample what's coming out of your sneeze, more or less, it would be representative of the microorganisms in your mouth. Now, in the atmosphere, you could think of geological and meteorological processes in effect causing the Earth's surface to sneeze. And therefore, the same signal we get in the atmosphere is representative of what was on the surface. And so um, the exact signal of microorganisms really depends on where we're sampling, how high we're sampling, the season we're sampling, and the local topography. And so it's, it's a complicated question to give a simple answer to, but more or less because the microorganisms are being swept up from the surface, the samples that we get in the atmosphere are representative of that surface, albeit in a much lower concentration. So this is going to be pollens, and it's going to be you know fungi, and well, even bacteria and viruses, right? Absolutely. All of the above, Jim. We see fragments of uh, pollen and other pieces of biological debris in the atmosphere as well, too. And, uh, you know, speaking of sneezing, anybody that suffers from seasonal allergies is acutely aware of pollen uh, in the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, you may not know that if you suffer from seasonal allergies, you too are an aerobiologist. Uh, but that's just to say that, you know, we, we have... Um, been impacted in a lot of ways by the movement of airborne microbes, whether or not uh, we've had the systems to actually start to uh, understand all these complicated patterns of dispersal. It's a really exciting time to be an aerobiologist, start to answer some of these questions about what is above our head. Indeed, uh, I'm fortunate I, I don't have allergies, so I am not an aerobiology detector. But what I want to know is how high do these get? What's the What's the altitude range, and do we see different types of different altitudes, or it is a it, it's a mixture? In general, the concentration of bioaerosols decreases the higher you get above the Earth's surface. Um, we've seen reports anywhere ranging from about five, even to fifty percent of the total aerosol signal for aerosols that are larger than about two and a half microns. Uh, derived from biological particles. Now we can use airplanes, we can use balloons, and we can even use sounding rockets. And there's really just been a handful of studies published in peer-reviewed literature that have been able to make detections in Earth's stratosphere, which is very high up above the surface, more or less above 40,000 feet. Um, and the highest report ever was done, not using an aircraft, but a sounding rocket. Um, all the way up to about 250,000 feet in the mesosphere. Now, that was just a single study that was published in the 1970s, and it hasn't been repeated, but it's an interesting and intriguing result. I would uh, put more confidence in a handful of other studies flown using large scientific balloons that were also able to measure a microbiological signal at around 120,000 feet in Earth's middle stratosphere. Wow. Well, it's also above the ozone. 120,000 feet is really up there, which means, you know, they're going to also get bombarded with ultraviolet light from the sun. Uh, how do they survive? 
In fact, most of the biomass that we collect in the upper atmosphere we think is dead. We can still detect its presence based on its DNA signal, but most of the bioaerosols that get swept up into the atmosphere, particularly above the troposphere and into the stratosphere, are not living. Uh, now, some still can withstand those conditions. So there is a portion of really resilient microbes, mostly spore-forming bacteria, that have been recovered from the middle stratosphere, which is truly extraordinary based on the environmental conditions, that location. And you mentioned it, it's very strongly irradiated at that altitude above the ozone in particular. It's freezing and it's really dry. And all of these things make it even more remarkable that we can recover any what we call viable signal, uh, life that is still hanging on, probably hunkered down in a state of dormancy. Well, do some of these microorganisms carry disease? I would say first and foremost that the vast majority of microorganisms are harmless. And in fact, most microorganisms in nature are helpful. And so I want to dispel any worries people may have about microorganisms moving in the atmosphere. Now, that said, there have been a few reports of potential correlations between the movement of winds across adjacent uh, agricultural fields and the spread of certain plant pathogens. There's also a lot of interest in uh, the so-called meningitis belt and whether or not you can have human diseases moving along, uh, moving along with winds across continents. Now. Um, there's going to be a lot more work required to actually establish such associations. But before we can do any of that, we need more efficient methods for making collections in the atmosphere. And so there's still much work to be done before we start to uh, monitor and perhaps even predict the movement of diseases in the atmosphere if, in fact, it's happening. Now, I wouldn't say to worry about what's above your head, keep your windows open. I would say the aerobiology of the indoor environment is a lot more likely to be harmful to your health than the aerobiology of the open air outside. We hear so much about, you know, the transmission of COVID, a virus, you know, and we know that when you sneeze, particles move away and can go uh, many feet. Uh, so do they immediately go up or what happens to them in general? Yeah, most of the particles coming out of your sneeze are large enough that they'll fall to the ground um, pretty quickly. But that said, wear your face mask. It's important. Of course, aerosols do have effects on the weather. Would microbes also affect uh, the weather in any way? Whether or not the microbes or pieces of microbes, if they're damaged, whether or not they're living or dead, they can still influence precipitation in the weather. Now, for precipitation to occur, you need to have uh, a nucleus for water to nucleate onto, and that can occur through a biological particle. Now, there's a, a famous, well-studied at this point, bacterium Pseudomonas syringae, which has been examined for its common um, occurrence in cloud water and also precipitation that's uh, collected at high alpine observatories. Why do we keep finding this particular bacterium? Turns out that it's got proteins on its outer membrane that actually induce nucleation more efficiently than 
particles that are not biological. So this is just absolutely fascinating. It could in fact be an evolutionary outcome that this plant microbe, which resides on the surface of leaves and gets commonly swept up into the atmosphere, may have, through natural selection, figured out a way through proteins on its outer membrane to really build its own parachute for returning to the surface quickly. Wow. Well, you've done a lot of experiments, not only from aircraft, but from balloons, too. Can you give us a little overview about what you've been doing with the uh, those platforms? The first thing I wanted to do was follow on Dr. Dale Griffin's uh, pioneering studies on NASA's ER-2 aircraft. And so after his landmark paper in 2004, we flew another mission on NASA's ER-2 aircraft over the open Pacific Ocean, the same altitude, around 66,000 feet. And uh, sure enough, we were able to uh, verify the same findings that Dr. Griffin's team reported earlier, which was not only a signal of microbes over the open ocean at 66,000 feet, but living bacteria and fungi. So despite my skepticism, we were able to verify those results, and it really motivated me to continue making samples using NASA aircraft. Starting three years ago, using a different NASA aircraft, a Gulfstream jet called the C-20A, which can't fly as high, but can still reach about 40,000 feet in altitude, we were able to modify uh, a system that more or less was already in place on the aircraft for measuring the vehicle's airspeed. Just a tube that sticks out of the uh, window of the airplane and into the open atmosphere. And we were able to optimize that tube in such a way that uh, we could get very efficient um, volumes of air moving through our, our system. So I'd, I would encourage any of uh, curious listeners to go take a look at those surveys, uh, which report all the kinds of diverse microorganisms above our head and altitudes ranging from 10,000 all the way up to 40,000 feet using this new system. So how do you get even higher? Um, that's where the NASA large scientific balloons come in. And so we've also flown a series of missions, both from uh, New Mexico and the United States and even Antarctica on large NASA scientific balloons that can reach all the way up to about 120,000 feet and can linger at that altitude for hours and in some cases weeks. So what we do with those studies, instead of trying to make collections at that altitude, we intentionally carry known types of microorganisms, some of the same types of bacteria that we commonly find in the aircraft surveys. We take them to the middle stratosphere on NASA balloons, expose them to that environment, and then return them to the lab after the exposure to measure, did anything survive and if so, how? And so we're using a variety of platforms to address some of those larger questions in aerobiology that uh, remain poorly understood still. Well, this really brings me to one of the recent discoveries, you know, that's been reported by a series of scientists that see phosphine, you know, at 60 kilometers in the Venus atmosphere. And so we know that uh, uh, the surface pressure is just enormous on Venus, you know, 90 times ours, and the temperature is hot enough to melt lead. But at that, that altitude, you know, it's like an atmosphere. Looking at that, uh, do you think that's possible? Could microbes be living in, in that altitude on Venus? Well, I'll say the idea of what a habitable zone is has certainly changed substantially even in my lifetime and more generally in the field of astrobiology. You know, when I was in school, we were taught, you know, 
there was sort of a Goldilocks zone of where plant could be habitable. And then suddenly we started discovering all of this life in the subsurface of Earth. And that totally shattered the idea of what a habitable zone could be and where we should look for signs of life in the universe. Yeah, and hydrothermal vents in the ocean too. You know, the hydrothermal vents are just pouring pouring out material that life loves. Sure. And we do know, based on our own solar system, that atmospheres are relatively common. So we would expect more planets or maybe more moons with atmospheres as well throughout the universe. And so for that reason, I think it's really important to consider whether or not uh, the atmosphere and clouds could, in a sense, be an ecosystem. If not here on Earth, perhaps it's possible with other environmental circumstances and other planetary bodies. Now, the discovery uh, that's been reported um, at Venus is uh, certainly motivating a lot of scientific debate. And I think that is just such a positive thing. It is. Um, I think that a lot of um, important uh, work will come from interdisciplinary conversations and dialogues that are occurring as a result of that study. You know, I see astronomers now debating with microbiologists. I see atmospheric chemists debating with geologists. And I think all of these things are so wonderful and so healthy for a vibrant and stronger field of astrobiology. So it's a, as I mentioned before, it's a great time to be an aerobiologist on Earth because we've got plenty of difficult questions both here over our head and, and certainly as we look elsewhere um, for signs of life in the universe. Well, you know, David, I always like to ask my guests to tell me what was the event or person, place, or thing that got them so excited about being a scientist that it propelled them forward and they became the scientists they are today. I call that event a gravity assist. And many people have had more than one gravity assist along the way. So David, what was your gravity assist? Oh, I, I very much have had multiple gravity assists. Uh, I've been uh, fortunate to slingshot around a few uh, planets, if you will, on my trajectory to wherever I'm heading. <laughs> so I, I would love to give uh, thanks to um, Back in my public school system in Colorado, uh, some great science teachers, uh, Judy Whitman, who helped me fall in love with the field of biology, uh, Tim Linzicki, who was so patient with me when I was failing my physics exams and probably wanted nothing to do with science, but you know, in his own free time and lunch breaks, he uh, was able to coach me back into the fold and help me understand some of the physical principles I was struggling with when I was younger. And then when I got to college, I had just an outstanding thesis advisor who introduced me to doing microbiology. Uh, that's TC Onstott. Uh, and I was so fortunate to cross paths with TC and he introduced me to how I could really make a career out of astrobiology and encouraged me to go to graduate school. And then I would give my last major gravity assist uh, shout out to Bill Parsons, former center director at Kennedy Space Center, who saw something in me that I certainly didn't see in myself, which was going to work for NASA. To me, it just seemed so out of reach, but uh, Bill Parsons was able to convince me otherwise, encourage me to come uh, start work at Kennedy Space Center. And so uh, I'm so grateful to him and anybody listening to this conversation that has the dream of coming to work for NASA, I want you to know you can do it. Um, you'll need some great mentors along the way. Your gravity assist will be there. Uh, and don't hesitate to reach out to people because um, they are willing to help. 
Indeed, yeah. And I, I want to thank you, too, because I just delighted your work on, uh, at NASA Ames and, and it got that new laboratory up and running. Well, David, thanks so much for joining me and discussing this fascinating topic. It was my pleasure, Jim. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, join me next time as we continue our journey to look for life beyond Earth. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist. If you like Gravity Assist and want even more great NASA podcasts, check out the new season of NASA's Curious Universe. Curious Universe takes listeners on exciting adventures with top NASA experts like astronauts, scientists, and engineers. In their second season, you'll tour the International Space Station, investigate how black holes form, and much, much more. Here's a sneak preview of what you can expect to hear. The thing about astronomy is that it gets to the heart of the big questions that we have as human beings. Where did we come from? Are we alone in the universe? universe is a wild and wonderful place. Welcome to NASA's Curious Universe. In this podcast, NASA is your tour guide. For the past 20 years, we have been a space-faring civilization. If you were born after the year 2000, you haven't lived a single day without human beings in space. Almost 17 years of my career has been focused on this one day to make sure everything goes according to plan. It really all happens in less than 20 seconds. Think of something that's moving very slow, around 0.8 or 0.9 miles an hour, moving this big rocket down the road. It just goes and it just gets louder and louder. We actually think there are probably close to 100 million black holes just in the Milky Way alone, all sprinkled around dead ashes of stars. It's those mysteries that are out there in the universe that we haven't even dreamed of yet. I think the universe is going to surprise us. NASA's Curious Universe Season 2, coming to your ears this October. Subscribe right now and get ready for a grand adventure. You can listen and subscribe to NASA's Curious Universe on your favorite podcast app. Check out nasa.gov podcasts.